wonderful paper. A few things that occurred to me, the, the poor Smock Alley uh, program prompt scripts that got torn up and put into somebody's scrapbook. Archives undergo shocking amounts of depredation and destruction, and it's, it's really important to remember that unlike books, they're unique and fragile. And if they go, they're gone. That's it. That terrible ad, you know, if you don't buy the bed now, it'll be gone. Yeah, well, of course. Like, if it's gone, it's gone. But the Archives of Ireland suffered a terrible blow in 1922 when the Public Record Office was blown up during the Civil War. And I won't go into my usual rant about who's to blame and who I want to drag up through the streets in agony for what they did to our history, um, because you've all heard it before. But it's important to remember that that is the case. That makes anything that remains disproportionately important. It makes something as precious as the Abbey Archive or the archives of any other theatre or group involved with theatre in this country disproportionately important because they survive. And I want to echo uh, Patrick's call that we make sure that we think about current records as much as saving those of the past because there are specific challenges with things like electronic records. The Abbey, no doubt, has a very sophisticated electronic record system. What are they doing to make sure that that is taken care of and survives into the future? Um, there are issues around innovative site-specific theatre. How do you archive that? The script isn't enough. You've got to have a record of the performance. So all these things are stuff for us to look at. And lastly, thank God for Marina Carr. I mean, women all over Ireland get down on their bended knees and say, thank God for Marina Carr. Where would we be without her? She did blaze a trail for other women. Um, and we now have a flourishing women's sector of the theatre in Ireland. But it is terrifying to look back and see how few of them there were engaged particularly in writing. Now, moving on to further discussion of um, the Abbey, the wonderful Abbey archive. Uh, and may I make a plea here, this may be unpopular. If there's any chance of making it free to access, please, please do so. I'm a passionate advocate of free access to archival material. And the census has been free, the military service pensions files are free, Bureau of Military History is free. This archive is on a par with all of those things and it would be a real shame if people had to pay money to get access to it. So there's any way of doing that, please try. I'm glad not everyone thinks I'm Pollyanna. You know, it's nice to, to know that there might be some support for this as even an, an economic cultural measure. Our next speaker is Mairead Delaney, who is the heroic archivist of the Abbey Theatre. I've known her for a very long time. She's been here for 18 years, and during that time, she has taken extremely great care of her very precious collection, which, as we know, is now being digitised in NUI Galway. And I know she's played a huge part in making that happen. She's been hugely instrumental also in making the collection accessible to researchers and to the general public. And those are two serious categories of people. We, we don't just, as archivists, we don't just serve the research and scholarly community. We want to engage with the general public. And again, that's where free to access digitization makes that happen in a really wonderful way. Um, she's also engaged in wonderfully innovative ways uh, of making um, the collection available for educational purposes uh, by having people in for uh, specific um, occasions to handle particular things, to look at particular scripts and so forth. And she's going to talk to us today about the Abbey Archive, a resource for theatre and the public. Mairead. Afternoon. So, apologies for my voice, it's a bit husky at the moment. Um, I'm just basically, I'm going to talk you through the Abbey Theatre Archive, how it came about, the collection, what we have here, and maybe some unusual uses for archives. 
So as we all know, archives by definition are the collected memory of an institution or an individual, and the Abbey is no exception in this case. However, there are some occasions when people arrive in, they expect to see the papers of Lady Gregory, Yeats and Singh, and unfortunately those papers don't exist within our archive, but they are available to us. The National Library have a wonderful collection of the Yeats papers, Singh papers are in Trinity, but you do have to travel a little bit further, you have to go to New York, to the New York Public Library, to get access to the Lady Gregory papers. Um, you, you would expect that there's an awful lot of material here, just talking about our, the extent of what the digital archive will be, it is actually very, very extensive and very frightening when you first walk in as a, a young archivist and you're faced with the task of uh, trying to put order on what is, in effect, disorganised when you first arrive. It's interesting to note that the archive came about from act of commemoration. The 90th anniversary of the Abbey sparked an interest in uh, the whole notion of archives and, and their use. So an exhibition of photographs were, were put together um, and they found quite a lot of material here. Equally, a conversation was had in the Oris between Patrick Mason and Mary Robinson. And they were talking about the value of archives and the fact that there wasn't a theatre archive. So this was basically lighting the spark for Patrick. Um, he commissioned a report onto the archival collection here and two years later I was appointed. And from that point onwards, we have been actively collecting and preserving the material. And obviously trying to make it as, as available as possible. But you say, well, what exactly have we got? And we have material going back to the 1890s from posters, programs, uh, every sort of material. And what I thought I'd do is bring you through some of that material and just to show you the relevance of how it can be used for the theatre the, and for the general public. We also have some, sorry, apologies, I'm just too short. I'm going to bring you through what are, I think, our very important collections. So starting off, we have the Master Programme Collection. We have over 90 volumes of, of programmes. Each year is gathered together, and we're gathered by um, W.A. Henderson, who was the secretary for the very first days of the theatre. Um, they're tightly bound, so sometimes they're very hard to get at. But this is actually the programme for the very first performance on the Abbey stage. So you can see what was put on on the first night. And equally, what you see is a woman. We have a moment mentioned here. Annie Horneman, who is the first sponsor of the Abbey, she gets her own credit, and she's actually credited as designing the costumes for the very first play on stage. Now, this is unusual, because as you go through the programme collection for the next 20 years, there's no reference to set designers, costume designers. The directors, they're just not mentioned. The only people who are mentioned on stage are the writers and the actors, and everybody else is forgotten about. Um, not that they're not there, but it's just very hard to find them within that record. Obviously, we have photographs. Now, this is just to situate you in the old abbey as it was. Um, a lot of people don't recognise that space um, because, obviously, it, it burned in 51. So it's great to have a record of the space itself, but obviously we have a vast collection of programmes and obviously they're going to illustrate the productions. This one's unusual in that you have three Allgood sisters. Everybody knows of Molly Allgood, they know of Sarah Allgood, but who knew that Annie was on stage as well? And this is one of the first productions um, of the three of them together, and Annie normally just gets her walk-on parts, but she's here in Riders to the Sea, and it's actually one of the first occasions when Singh meets Molly. So it's just, you know, a, a romantic moment, as I say. We then move on to photographs and programmes of our Amer American campaign. Um, we first go to America in 1911, and while we're there, we have vast amount of scrapbooks retained of, of newspaper accounts of what goes on, the riots that were involved in, along the way in New York, in Philadelphia. Um, and again, these are all in the National Library. 
uh, they were put there in the 70s, but actually as part of this project, we are now digitizing those as well, and they will form part of the digital record. 1916, I'm just going to represent it in this piece because we have the poster for what should have happened in 1916. What they expected to put on, we actually have the program as well, who was expected to be taking part on the Easter Monday and on the Tuesday, and unfortunately this doesn't happen. The play, The Spansel of Death, is not performed and has remained unperformed. Uh, because some of the actors are completely caught up in the action, obviously, in 1916. And again, we can involve a lot more women there as well. We have Maureen Hulick, one of the actresses. She's actually helping out as a cook in Jacob's Biss Factory, now the National Archives. Um, but by contrast, there is another piece of imagery in the theatre. And this is the rising of the moon. It's a poster of some of the actors who didn't take part in the rising. In fact, they join up. They go to war. And this is Lieutenant Martin. His stage name is Philip Guyry. And when he's abroad, he's captured. And in a German prisoner of war camp, he teaches the rising of the moon, that nationalist piece, to a bunch of unionists, and they're performing it for the prison guards. So I think that in itself is just the two sides of 1916, clearly depicted in two pieces of art, very, very simply. We move on to administrative records. We have logbooks of submission. So in this case, you can actually see the very first submission by Sean O'Casey. It's the very top piece, the very top line, a play called Profit and Loss. And when we talk about the act of memory, O'Casey completely forgets this. He never mentions this in his autobiographies. There's no reference to this submission, but we do have the record. It's the, the address is correct, it's 18 Albert Corn Road. It is, it, absolutely, it is him. Um, but if you look down through that page, it also records the period of the rising. So you can see there's a tail off in submissions. There's about five weeks where nothing comes in. And uh, you know, if we're taking that piece out of context, if you didn't know about the rising, it would just be a simple little logbook of submissions. But again, everything is, context is absolutely everything. Moving again to 1921. Obviously, if you're thinking here in Dublin, we have a lot more activity. We're back to, again, we have activity on the streets around us. Um, there's a curfew in place. So the Abbey can't perform in the city centre. So they go to London. They put on a series of lectures um, as part of their whole engagement in the Royal Theatre, the Royal Court Theatre. While they're there, they have speakers. And the speakers who are lined up are W.B. Yeats, Lady Gregory, St. John Irvine, and Bernard Shaw. Now, St. John Irvine is a very important figure for us in 1916 because he's the general manager at the theatre. And he famously said that the gunboat Helga should have turned its turrets on the Abbey and just blown it to smithereens. Um, this is an unfortunate statement when some of the actors in the company have, you know, have died for the cause or have been locked up for the cause. Um, but his comment was that the Abbey was a shabby building and should have been torn down. And this was the one excuse that they could actually get a new building out of, the, out of the rising. But unfortunately, only one pane of glass was damaged. So that was the end of that for him. But it didn't go down well with the actors and they actually they, they threatened to strike and in fact do strike, and it's the very first official strike where Lady Gregory didn't side with the actor, she sided with the general manager, St. John Irvine, and said, actually, no, the manager is, is the person in charge. Um, but the actors, you know, when you look at the, into the truth of the matter, most of them were signed up to go to film, so it was a kind of an idle threat. They were actually about to leave in the next couple of weeks anyway, but, you know, this is how it comes about. So within five years, St. John Irvine is back then, supporting the Abbey in London and giving a public lecture. That in itself, I think, is fascinating. Within five years, something has, has changed. And in the meantime, he has been to war himself and lost a leg for the cause. So there's, there's an awful lot going on behind what are very simple little documents. I couldn't resist putting in Sean O'Casey if we're talking about the 20s. Um, this is the first production of The Shadow of a Gunman. It comes in as On the Run. So they take the play in, they change the title, 
give it a new title, and on it goes. But within this piece, if you look at the bottom, there's a little note which says, sounds customary with um, arrayed by auxiliaries will be heard within the act. And what they're doing is they're actually informing people, don't be afraid, there is actually something within this play because this is basically about two more months before hostilities end in the War of Independence. So when we're talking about action and performing pieces, you know, close to the action of events, this is absolutely happening within the confines of this theatre, but the action is on stage, but there's a lot more action going on outstage. And that's just a very interesting piece to note. And obviously, the money. The money is very important. So I thought I would take out an unknown Locasi play. So we have Nanny's Night Out. Everybody talks about the Dublin trilogy, the three great plays. But within that series of, of seven years, there's actually five plays by O'Casey. And this is one that is completely forgotten about, Nanny's Night Out. And in the week where we have been to Wheatfield Prison, I couldn't resist taking a piece that actually relates to someone who basically gets out of prison for one night. The revolving door syndrome happens, she's back in. So this is the title, it refers to Nanny's Night Out. She's out for one night from Manchoy Prison. But when it's submitted, it's actually Irish Nanny Passes. So O'Casey originally wanted to have Nanny killed. And it doesn't have, so there's that. When he publishes, he publishes with both endings. So you can see, you can take for yourself which is, is the better piece. Um, but the money tells all. It took in, in that week, £316, which is a phenomenal amount of money, when normally maybe £180 was the takings. So O'Casey was absolutely bankrolling a lot of the other new experimental work at the time. And this then, very simply, is the ground plan for that production. And we've talked about, uh, Patrick has talked about uh, the whole role of scholars and basically what the, the tenant, that the play is everything or the script is everything. But a lot of this material, the production material, and how the stage managers put everything on stage is vital to our understanding of the productions. So it's a very, very simple little piece that you have. And, and most of these stage management records are very, very simple. Uh, they're literally sketched because the actors only have one week to put on this production and then they move on. So we have Propolis. Again, it's a nice listing of what happens, but as an authentic record, they actually mark which ones were absolutely, were finally used in the production. So not only have you what they intended at the beginning of the rehearsal, but what they finally used. Curtain and lighting cues, very, very simple. Nowadays, with all our digital technology, everything happens magically, everyone can connect, but if you're on two sides of the old Abbey stage, you need to have those two little pieces of cues. Um, if somebody's prompting at one side, they need to have a part of the script and to be aware of who is going to be speaking and when should they actually move, say, the curtains or move, move props. So they have little clues. And you'll see there's an action when Johnny moves out, and that is Will Shields. Now, who's Will Shields? He's now, that's Barry Fitzgerald. But if you didn't know that, you would know within the action of what's happening. We have minute books. So you can actually see what's going on at the administrative level. And this I've included because the acceptance of O'KC and the acceptance of Plough. Um, and Patrick Mason referred to it yesterday about uh, that acceptance and the issue with our first government representative on the board. It's the very last paragraph. It's proposed by Lady Gregory, seconded by Langs Robinson, and it's passed by three votes to one that plough be accepted, subject to alterations by the producer. Now, the producer is Lennox Robinson, and this entry is in his hand. They've actually basically moved the... The secretary is not involved in the, this meeting. It's literally just themselves having their final, their final argument about it, and on it goes. And we actually do have the prompt script itself. Um, and just like the prompt script that Patrick was referring to earlier, you can see all the changes, see what's going on. And that famous song, Nora, 
is actually a second attempt at that scene. The original song O'Casey put underneath was deemed to be too racy. He just wasn't allowed to have it. Um, the last line of which is, I'll seize thee panting in the arms. And <coughs> Sorry, apologies, the voice. And, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, exactly, just good timing. And, uh, and seize thee um, and kiss the red ripe lips of you. So the red, little red lip Nora, all those connotations, are basically they link back to that song, but the song is now gone. So it's, it's a loss, and it's something that... I suppose, as an archivist, you can go back and say, well, that's, there's the curiosity. I wonder, could, you know, if you played it the way he had originally intended it to be, I mean, what could you make of that? Um, but and Rosie Resmond's song is actually missing as well from the first production, as are all references to you know, the blasphemous references to Christ or Jesus or anything like that. Um, architectural plans. Most people say, well, why would you be interested in that? But this is actually the survey of the old abbey and the place that was left, what was left after the fire. So we have a complete survey of the building. And from this, you can see the exact dimensions of the peacock and of the abbey. And certainly my generation would have no knowledge of the old peacock. And you can see just how tiny it is. Um, it's basically just a four bay with four windows um, room where they've knocked out. Um, they've put a stage to the right hand side. The stage was only about one foot high. And it's, it's just a tiny, tiny space. And 102 seats, the two seats were for the ushers. Um, but it's just to have a nice you know, a view of what happened there. Um, and we do have a, a, a ledger that records who rented the, the space from 1931 to the 50s. Unfortunately, we don't have the programs to match that, so that's the ongoing search to, to, to find those. Um, costume drawings, we can't resist these. And again, we're talking about the women. This is by Dorothy Trevor Smith. Um, she later becomes Dolly Robinson. She marries Alex Robinson. And we have quite a few of her records. Again, King Lear. This is the very first time. King Lear, obviously, here last year, but the very first time we produced it was 1928. And this is just not what you expect from the Abbey of the 1920s. It's very avant-garde. It's just the colours are beautiful. Um, we, could, could, we could literally continue on for 20 minutes on that alone, so we won't. Um, donated collections. We talked about the, the Abbey being fragmented. Some of the collections being not here. Um, the Abbey Fire of 51. You can see a lot of the edge, material I've showed at the burnt edges. Uh, what we've done is we've actually tried actively to fill those gaps, to basically recount those memories. And we have quite a lot of donated collections. And a lot of them actually are from female designers. So on the left-hand side, you have Alicia Sweetman, 1945. We have Tanya Mazevich, again, a very, very seminal artist for the theatre. And on the right-hand side, this is one of the Panto sketches by Tomás Magana. Most people recognise him, obviously, as the three times artistic director of the Abbey, but he began here as a scenic artist, and there's a lot of his designs here as well. I just wanted to show you just the devastation that the Abbey archives went through. This is backstage at the old Abbey. So on the right-hand side, you can see the reservation slips for the next night. So they were, they were actually expecting a very good audience for Plough, Plough and the Stars, um, but the one on the left is actually the cupboard where the scripts and the early stage management records were held. So there's no wonder all the edges are burnt. And um, you can just see the fire reel just in front. Um, and it is devastating. There's just no way of getting around it. Um, the auditorium is fine, but the, the material is badly damaged. As a result, then, the material itself now that, that has survived is very brittle. And so we really can't, we don't want to handle it too much. So digitizing it is an obvious way of, uh, of getting around that scenario. The new abbey itself opens again in 1966 with a complete awareness now that they actually need to preserve their, their files and they create a script room and that's where a lot of the material is held. But when they open, they open with a production of Recall the Years which is a historical piece looking back at the abbey's history to that point. 
And ironically, you see archives on stage. They're already using some of the commentary in the newspaper accounts for their first tour in 1911. And actually, some of these accounts are from the Philadelphia encounter that they have with the audience, where they are pelted with uh, decomposed eggs and all sorts of things like that. Uh, but they are interesting. And just archives, they are a living thing. They're used as a resource here within the theatre. They have a dramaturgical function in that the actors come in, look at the videos. We have about 300 videos of productions. Sometimes people come in to have a look at them before their audition, just to see... Oh, right, I better hurry up. I didn't mean that. That's no, okay. You are running out of time. I'll run, I'll run through. It's the voice. Um, so the revivals, obviously, okay, see, something from the repertoire, we will have a lot of content. But, but we were talking about 13. Uh, Derv Lacrati came in to use the archive for her research for Helena Maloney. Um, obviously, Helena Maloney was an actress here at the Abbey, and we were trying to pinpoint exactly where she would have left, where, where was the point where she was in the dressing room. And we could look at the plans and determine exactly where she should have been, and that's why we could pinpoint on the alley outside where we were going. Um, on this plan, you can actually, it's hard to see from the scenery store, and behind that, the one unmarked part is the green room. But I'm just going to say to the danger of what happens to archives in a theatre on occasion. This is a ledger from 1936 to 1955, which was used as a prop on stage. It was nailed down to the table so that during the scene change, it wouldn't move. Um, so we have a nice hole all the way through. So when we come to digitising that, there's going to be a lot of pressure trying to literally put each page back in order before we pressurise. Um, archives have actually wandered onto stage here in my time. Uh, Give Me Your Answer Due by Brian Friel is obviously about a writer who is there surrounded by his archive. And ironically, during the production, we had loads of duplicates of scripts. So we actually used a lot of scripts from the scriptrum as the files of the production. So archives were on stage. Observatory by Dara Carvel is set in two time periods. And for the first time that I know of anyway, archival gloves and acid-free boxes made it to stage. They were used as well. The Sin Eaters is a, just an interesting project. This is actually the students of Lear last year, the second year students, came in and were asking me about, well, we actually talked about archives, the role of the archivist, what we do, how we catalogue. And ironically, they, they, they put on a piece called the Sin Eaters. And this is the first time that I know of that an archivist is actually one of the characters on the stage. So I'm open to any sort of opinion on that. Um, and there isn't people here, just again, a little piece of curiosity, that one of the pieces that you see right behind you on stage is a mock-up from um, Mixed Marriage from 1913 because um, the 31st of December of last year was the 100th anniversary of an event here in the Abbey where a matinee production was put on by the Abbey of, the, of Mixed Marriage and that performance, all the proceeds went to the Locked Out Relief Fund. Um, so we thought, well, if we're obviously having a production about that, we, we couldn't resist with entire props to actually mock up a, a, a poster and put it on here. So I'm, I'm absolutely fully aware I've gone over time, so I think I'll, I'll stop there.